0: Chapter Twelve of Erewhon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Roger Moline. Erewhon by Samuel Butler. Chapter Twelve. Malcontents. I confess that I felt rather unhappy when I got home, and thought more closely over the trial that I had just witnessed. For the time I was carried away by the opinion of those among whom I was. They had no misgivings about what they were doing. There did not seem to be a person in the whole court who had the smallest doubt but that all was exactly as it should be. This universal unsuspecting confidence was imparted by sympathy to myself, in spite of all my training in opinions so widely different. So it is with most of us, that which we observe to be taken as a matter of course by those around us, we take as a matter of course ourselves. And after all, it is our duty to do this, save upon grave occasion but when I was alone and began to think the trial over it certainly did strike me as betraying a strange and untenable position. Had the judge said that he acknowledged the probable truth, namely that the prisoner was born of unhealthy parents, or had been starved in infancy, or had met with some accidents which had developed consumption, and had he then gone on to say that, though he knew all this and bitterly regretted that the protection of society obliged him to inflict additional pain on one who had suffered so much already yet that there was no help for it i could have understood the position however mistaken i might have thought it the judge was fully persuaded that the infliction of pain upon the weak and sickly was the only means of preventing weakness and sickliness from spreading and that ten times the suffering now inflicted upon the accused was eventually warded off from others by the present apparent severity. I could therefore perfectly understand his inflicting whatever pain he might consider necessary in order to prevent so bad an example from spreading further and lowering the Erewhonian standard, but it seemed almost childish to tell the prisoner that he could have been in good health if he had been more fortunate in his constitution and been exposed to less hardships when he was a boy. I write with great diffidence, but it seems to me that there is no unfairness in punishing people for their misfortunes or rewarding them for their sheer good luck. It is the normal condition of human life that this should be done, and no right-minded person will complain of being subjected to the common treatment. There is no alternative open to us. It is idle to say that men are not responsible for their misfortunes. What is responsibility? Surely, to be responsible means to be liable, to have to give an answer should it be demanded, and all things which live are responsible for their lives and actions should society see fit to question them through the mouth of its authorized agent. What is the offense of a lamb? that we should rear it and tend it and lull it into security for the express purpose of killing it. Its offense is the misfortune of being something which society wants to eat and which cannot defend itself. This is ample. Who shall limit the right of society except society itself? And what consideration for the individual is tolerable unless society be the gainer thereby? Wherefore should a man be so richly rewarded for having been son to a millionaire, were it not clearly provable that the common welfare is thus better furthered? We cannot seriously detract from a man's merit in having been the son of a rich father without imperiling our own tenure of things which we do not wish to jeopardize. If this were otherwise, we should not let him keep his money for a single hour, we would have it ourselves at once. For property is robbery, but then we are all robbers, or would be robbers, together, and have found it essential to organize our thieving as we have found it necessary to organize our lust and our revenge. Property, marriage, the law, as the bed to the river, so rule and convention to the instinct and woe to him who tampers with the banks while the flood is flowing. But to return. Even in England, a man on board a ship with yellow fever is held responsible for his mischance, no matter what his being kept in quarantine may cost him. He may catch the fever and die. We cannot help it. He must take his chance, as other people do, but surely it would be desperate unkindness to add contumely to our self-protection, unless, indeed, we believe that contumely is one of our best means of self-protection. Again, take the case of maniacs. We say that they are irresponsible for their actions, but we take good care, or ought to take good care, that they shall answer to us for their insanity, and we imprison them in what we call an asylum that modern sanctuary, if we do not like their answers. This is a strange kind of irresponsibility. What we ought to say is that we can afford to be satisfied with a less satisfactory answer from a lunatic than from one who is not mad, because lunacy is less infectious than crime. We kill a serpent if we go in danger by it simply for being such-and-such a serpent in such-and-such a place but we never say that the serpent has only itself to blame for not having been a harmless creature. Its crime is that of being the thing which it is, but this is a capital offense, and we are right in killing it out of the way, unless we think it more dangerous to do so than to let it escape. Nevertheless, we pity the creature, even though we kill it. But in the case of him whose trial I have described above It was impossible that any one in the court should not have known that it was but by an accident of birth and circumstances that he was not himself also in a consumption, and yet none thought that it disgraced them to hear the judge give vent to the most cruel truisms about him. The judge himself was a kind and thoughtful person. He was a man of magnificence and benign presence. He was evidently of an iron constitution, and his face wore an expression of the maturest wisdom and experience. Yet for all this, old and learned as he was, he could not see things which one would have thought would have been apparent even to a child. He could not emancipate himself from, nay, it did not even occur to him to feel, the bondage of the ideas in which he had been born and bred. So was it also with the jury and bystanders, and, most wonderful of all, so was it even with the prisoner. Throughout he seemed fully impressed with the notion that he was being dealt with justly. He saw nothing wanton in his being told by the judge that he was to be punished, not so much as a necessary protection to society, although this was not entirely lost sight of, as because he had not been better born and bred than he was. But this led me to hope that he suffered less than he would have done if he had seen the matter in the same light that I did. And after all, justice is relative. I may here mention that only a few years before my arrival in the country, the treatment of all convicted invalids had been much more barbarous than now, for no physical remedy was provided and prisoners were put to the severest labor in all sorts of weather so that most of them soon succumbed to the extreme hardships which they suffered this was supposed to be beneficial in some ways inasmuch as it put the country to less expense for the maintenance of its criminal class but the growth of luxury had induced a relaxation of the old severity and a sensitive age would no longer tolerate what appeared to be an excess of rigor even towards the most guilty. Moreover, it was found that juries were less willing to convict and justice was often cheated because there was no alternatives between virtually condemning a man to death and letting him go free. It was also held that the country paid in recommittals for its over-severity, for those who had been imprisoned even for trifling ailments were often permanently disabled by their imprisonment and when a man had been once convicted it was probable that he would seldom afterwards be off the hands of the country. These evils had long been apparent and recognized, yet people were too indolent and too indifferent to suffering not their own to bestir themselves about putting an end to them, until at last a benevolent reformer devoted his whole life to effecting the necessary changes. He divided all illnesses into three classes, those affecting the head, the trunk, and the lower limbs, and obtained an enactment that all diseases of the head, whether internal or external, should be treated with laudanum, those of the body with castor oil, and those of the lower limbs with an embrocation of strong sulphuric acid and water. It may be said that the classification was not sufficiently careful, and that the remedies were ill-chosen, but it is a hard thing to initiate any reform, and it was necessary to familiarize the public mind with the principle by inserting the thin end of the wedge first. It is not, therefore, to be wondered at that among so practical a people there should still be some room for improvement." The mass of the nation are well pleased with existing arrangements, and believe that their treatment of criminals leaves little or nothing to be desired, but there is an energetic minority who hold what are considered to be extreme opinions, and who are not at all disposed to rest contented until the principle lately admitted has been carried further. I was at some pains to discover the opinions of these men and their reasons for entertaining them. They are held in great odium by the generality of the public, and are considered as subverters of all morality whatever. The malcontents, on the other hand, assert that illness is the inevitable result of certain antecedent causes, which, in the great majority of cases, were beyond the control of the individual, and that therefore, A man is only guilty for being in a consumption in the same way as rotten fruit is guilty for having gone rotten. True, the fruit must be thrown on one side as unfit for man's use, and the man, in a consumption, must be put in prison for the protection of his fellow citizens, but these radicals would not punish them further than by loss of liberty and a strict surveillance so long as he was prevented from injuring society they would allow him to make himself useful by supplying whatever of society's wants he could supply if he succeeded in thus earning money they would have him made as comfortable in prison as possible and would in no way interfere with his liberty more than was necessary to prevent him from escaping or from becoming more severely indisposed within the prison walls but they would deduct from his earnings the expenses of his board, lodging, surveillance, and half those of his conviction. If he was too ill to do anything for his support in prison, they would allow him nothing but bread and water, and very little of that. They say that society is foolish in refusing to allow itself to be benefited by a man merely because he has done it harm hitherto, and that objection to the labor of the diseased classes is only protection in another form. It is an attempt to raise the natural price of a commodity by saying that such and such persons, who are able and willing to produce it, shall not do so, whereby everyone has to pay more for it. Besides, so long as a man has not been actually killed he is our fellow creature, though perhaps a very unpleasant one. It is in a great degree the doing of others that he is what he is, or, in other words, the society which now condemns him is partly answerable concerning him. They say that there is no fear of any increase of disease under these circumstances, for the loss of liberty, the surveillance, the considerable and compulsory deduction from the prisoner's earnings, the very sparing use of stimulants, of which they would allow but little to any. And none to those who do not earn them, the enforced celibacy, and above all, the loss of reputation among friends, are in their opinion as ample safeguards to society against a general neglect of health as those now resorted to. A man, therefore, so they say, should carry his profession or trade into prison with him if possible, if not he must earn his living by the nearest thing to it that he can. But if he be a gentleman born and bred to no profession, he must pick oakum or write art criticisms for a newspaper. These people say further that the greater part of the illness which exists in their country is brought about by the insane manner in which it is treated. They believe that illness is, in many cases, just as curable as the moral diseases which they see daily cured around them, but that a great reform is impossible till men learn to take a juster view of what physical obliquity proceeds from. Men will hide their illnesses as long as they are scouted on its becoming known that they are ill. It is the scouting, not the physic, which produces the concealment. And if a man felt that the news of his being in ill health would be received by his neighbors as a deplorable fact, but one as much the result of necessary antecedent causes, as though he had broken into a jeweler's shop and stolen a valuable diamond necklace, as a fact which might just as easily have happened to themselves, only that they had the luck to be better born or reared and if they also felt that they would not be made more uncomfortable in the prison than the protection of society against infection and the proper treatment of their own disease actually demanded men would give themselves up to the police as readily on perceiving that they had taken smallpox as they go now to the straightener when they feel that they are on the point of forging a will or running away with somebody else's wife but the main argument on which they rely is that of economy for they know that they will sooner gain their end by appealing to men's pockets in which they have generally something of their own than to their heads which contain for the most part little but borrowed or stolen property and also they believe it to be the readiest test and the one which has most to show for itself if a course of conduct can be shown to cost a country less and this by no dishonorable saving and with no indirectly increased expenditure in other ways they hold that it requires a good deal to upset the arguments in favor of its being adopted and whether rightly or wrongly i cannot pretend to say they think that the more medicinal and humane treatment of the diseased of which they are the advocates would in the long run be much cheaper to the country but I did not gather that these reformers were opposed to meeting some of the more violent forms of illness with the cat-o'-nine-tails, or with death, for they saw no so effectual way of checking them. They would therefore both flog and hang, but they would do so pitifully. I have perhaps dwelt too long upon opinions which can have no possible bearing upon our own but I have not said the tenth part of what these would-be reformers urged upon me. I feel, however, that I have sufficiently trespassed upon the attention of the reader. End of chapter 12 Recording by Roger Moline